0: Welcome to another episode of Destination Linux Podcast.
1: Welcome to Episode 72. I'm Raka, and with me this week is our full team, Ryan, Zeb, and Michael, and we are super excited to get to talk to Chris Lamb. Chris, thank you for taking the time, and welcome to
0: the show. Thank you very much, Um Thank you very much for inviting me on. Um, I've been a listener for about three or four months. Um really like what you're doing. I love the vibe you've got going. So, yeah, cool.
1: So you're a listener and you still decided to come on. Hmm. <laughs> 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 All right. So you are the Debian project lead. You are a director at opensource.org. Correct me if I get anything wrong here. You are a freelance programmer. You're active in the reproducible builds organization. You're a contributor to hundreds of open source projects, which we'll get into later, uh, but your list goes on and on. All right, so before we get started talking about Debian directly, uh, let's focus on you and what you've done. So you mentioned on your website about being a film enthusiast, so give us your top three favorite movies of all time.
0: Ooh, um thing is you want to go really our house and say, oh, I really like her." All of these like really fancy films, but I think <laughs> sometimes you're like, what, what do I continue to rewatch? And sometimes that's a bit more instructive. So one, one film I've watched like countless times is Fifth Element.
2: Oh, well, nice.
0: Yep. I mean, it's not like highbrow film, but it's just, I could just totally watch that. Multipass. Yeah, indeed. Multipass. Um, I've got a really soft spot for the, the original Stargate film. Yep. Alright, mm. oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, um and also what, classics like hackers and stuff like that. Perhaps one I keep watching that's slightly more highbrow is, um Man for All Seasons, Um mm-hmm. of, the, of the, um is it Robert Bolt or Thomas Bolt, the play? It's pretty, pretty good. Um but yeah, the, the, I was just thinking, yeah, try not to, when you, everyone asks you like, oh, what's your favourite film, you just want to say something about, uh, you know, something that won the Oscars or something that won... Yeah.
1: Well, don't worry, we won't be giving any eyebrow choices here.
0: Yeah, I, I don't even know
3: what movies win Oscars ever. So
1: Ryan, what is your top three <laughs> movies of all time?
4: Look, I mean, Star Trek Undiscovered Country, I'm a big trackie. You can see all the Star Trek stuff behind in that case there. So, Undiscovered Country, I think, is one of the most underrated Star Trek movies. The Matrix, of course, and Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Not The Matrix One, uh, 2 and 3, by the way. Just original right
0: <laughs> oh they made they made others I didn't know <laughs> exactly
4: <laughs> what about you Rocco
1: um I would have to say Gladiator is my favorite movie of all time um Ooh, that's not bad Rocky 4 was up there and you know Saving Private Ryan so yeah I could Any watch more? those all day long
0: yeah I think I've watched Rocky 4 about 20 times yep yeah. <laughs>
5: so good, so
4: good. <laughs> Zeb
5: Um, Well, mine is almost some of the popular votes, but I don't think the last one will be. So my first, and I just watch it forever, is The Shawshank Redemption. There's just Mm -hmm. something about that that I really enjoy. Um, And then a bit of blood and guts like Rocco. I love Gladiator. It's (laughs) it's a fantastic movie. It is. Um, And then everybody hated 2, 3, and 4. But for me, First Blood and the original Rambo is also up there as one of my all-time favorite films. Is
0: that is that the one where he's in the valley?
5: Yes, he's, he he gets okay. caught and taken back to the um, sheriff's office, and then he disappears into the, oh, yeah, the yeah, woodlands. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Michael?
3: Um, so I agree with Shawshank Redemption with Zeb as one of my top ones, um, but I don't know which is my favorite. The other two would be Jurassic Park and Terminator 2.
1: Good ones. All good choices.
4: Yep. So you're also a cellist and you've performed in some public concerts at points. Sure. So when did you start we we're, we're keep we keep learning that every um you know project lead and dev and all these have these ridiculous talents and that's certainly a ridiculously cool talent. So how did you learn to start playing
0: um it was certainly part of the um part of my family um I think I started the cello at well, like yeah I started playing cello when I was 4 Um, You know, I was absolutely tiny playing on this incredibly tiny cello, Um, and I've just carried on playing since then. Um, In terms of concerts, um, not as many as I used to, but sort of in and around London, things like that. Yeah, it's really good, and it's really good to actually. What's more enjoyable than concerts is just sort of going around to people's houses and playing music all day, and then just going home. You know, yeah, Mm. yeah. It's like it's really sociable. You know, you're not no pressure and yeah yeah. so is. do
3: do you have any photos of when you were four playing the cello ch- a little tiny cello and that we can put into this like into this, so a screen cap <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> that sounded like you didn't really want us to put them in there,
0: <laughs> yeah that's uh, all right. It's okay. Um, I've actually got one that's, that's a little bit funny. So maybe I'll, I will send you that over if you like.
4: It'd be perfect. <laughs> and if you don't worry, because we can, if you want us to kind of mix it up, Michael is a professional, uh, recorder player. He plays the recorder. Mm, yes. Oh, nice.
3: Yes. I have a very, I can also play the harmonica and the cymbals. I mean, I can't make it do any particular sound, but I can play it and something comes out. <laughs> so <right>. works out. <laughs> so, um, the most typical, the most uh, you know, obvious question we have to ask is, "How did you get started with Linux?"
0: Ooh, with Linux. So I think my f- first introduction to Linux was through a family friend who kept sort of throwing out old hardware and things like that. So I, these were uh, machines that were already about five years old and things like that, and he just about to just throw them away. But family friends was like, "Oh, you know, maybe, maybe Chris would like them," because so, he liked computers at school. So I got a, a very old machine, I think it was a, must have been a 286 or something. Um and that had sort of DOS on it and things like that. And, but I, in the next few years he was also throwing away other stuff and I ended up with a particular book called, I think it's called Running Your Internet Site with Linux, it had um, a version of Slackware in a CD sleeve in the back. Um, which was I guess I managed to get that installed and things like that. But in those days internet site didn't mean necessarily mean a website because that's what you presumably inferred from site. Right. Like having a having a HTTP demon as they like obsessively called it was like number seven of nine of the different things you would want to run after an FTP server, a gopher <laughs> server, a time server, you know all these kind of bizarre things. So this is when like an internet site was like a More of a sort of a misc shell server going on there. Anyway, that was Slackware, Um, and then I eventually decided to, you know, I got perhaps a slightly faster computer, and um, decided to read some magazines, maybe, and saw, you know, read about this sort of Red Hat thing and everything's like Red Hat, Red Hat. So I sent off from a firm in the UK called uh, the Linux Emporium, and what they did was download the ISOs, you know, when they were when six hundred megabytes was just huge um and then they would just burn them to cd and send them to you um you it know, for just a small charge and i was like oh brilliant you know because i just didn't have internet and no way was that going to happen on um dial-up anyway so i said i sort of saved up my 10 pounds or whatever it was and send off sent off a red hat um and it came back on like six discs oh this is so <laughs> good oh, <yeah. laughs> um I went to install it and the installer um was like, Oh, I'm sorry, you need um you need twelve megabytes of RAM and I only had sort of eight or something like that. I was like, Oh, oh this sucks. I've just oh, spent man. just spent five pounds on this on this uh, red hat uh, set of discs. Yeah, um but um, actually lo- lo- luckily what really happened was um when I bought these discs, they would Linux and Porn would throw in very old discs as well, just for fun. Mm-hmm. Um you know, ones that even even to them were super old. And one of them was a very old version of Debian. So it wasn't even this current stable version of Debian. It was something like potato or something. Just equally <laughs> I don't even know what order that is in. Like Yeah, anyway, I installed um I put that in and was like, well, you know, this is older maybe, so it didn't need and it didn't need it didn't need um twelve megabytes of RAM.
3: So was was that your your first experience with Debian? Is is that like what sparked the fire?
0: Um, don't necessarily spark the fire because I think I then tried a whole bunch of others um, over the years. And one that springs to mind was something called Corel Linux, which hmm. came free on another CD. I'm not free, really sure what that was. Um, it's
4: amazing but, how well the CD marketing worked. We hear a lot of people talking about getting into Linux because of those CDs. Being in magazines.
0: I mean, how else were you going to get it? I mean, yeah, just, yeah. I mean, we, we re- I mean, maybe on the early ADSLs you could have downloaded an ISO, but
5: cool. Um, so, Chris, you've been a, a Debian developer now since two thousand and eight, I believe, and mm. you're currently serving as the project lead. But going back to your developer days, tell us about some of your favorite contributions that you've made to Debian. The thing is, I've, I've had quite a
0: made quite a number of very, well, quite a few small changes everywhere. In terms of, like, any standout ones, there are more ones that have sort of intrigued me or um, scratched a particular itch or have just been kind of fun. So, for example, I think I made a very early IRC bot that spammed a channel with all the, all the uploads, all the open bugs. And this is before yeah, everyone kind of did that. And I found that really just useful and, like, it was really great to see, like, what's going on in the project sort of live. Nice. Um, also, um, other silly things like um, a package I made, I think, last year called Installation Birthday and you install it and it does nothing until it's the anniversary on which you first installed your system. So if you install your system on you know, 1st of September, nothing happens till the 1st of September. Then you get an email saying, happy birthday, your system is now <laughs> That's cool. Oh, nice. You, ask your birthday cake. So yeah, uh, just just silly things like that. Um, I guess recently I've been doing a lot of um, quality assurance work. We have a tool called Lintian, which is a, um, a package checker. So uh, developers will um, sort of build a package locally you know, before uploading it and run it against Lintian. And um, it basically um, checks for hundreds and hundreds of common or at least um, common checks and, and problems with packages and things like that. So it says, like, oh... Um, uh, this is not installable with this or this build depends on this and it shouldn't. It's installing this to the wrong directory. It's got the wrong permissions and all these kind of things. And basically this, um, uh, it's a good way of, um, ensuring that the, the quality of the Debian archive is, is quite high because if you add it to the Lintian, then um, developers who perhaps may not know like the latest idea or from, um, uh, may not have the latest update on a particular policy and things like that he will just say, oh, yeah, in, in Python, we now change into this because it's better for these reasons. And uh, LinkedIn will, will tell you that. So I've been doing a lot of hacking. So I wouldn't say proud. I mean, that's probably the wrong word, but just that's certainly what I've been in, into. What
4: recently. I find so intriguing about this is, um, you know, when you think of people like yourself and project leads and devs, and you, it almost seems like you guys were born into making this incredible software. But like Rocco and I, we're starting to play with, little things and bash scripts and installers and little tweaks to code and things like that. And while it feels like you're, you've got this huge imposter syndrome
2: when you
4: <laughs> interview people like you. Um, but it, it's neat to hear that everybody kind of starts out with that tweaking and just little things. And then it builds and builds and builds into, you know, bigger projects. And I think that's Absolutely. important for people to hear because a lot of people want to get involved in Linux, but they assume that, you know, you have to be this expert coder who has 15 years of experience when the reality is some of these bugs are just a single line of code that you recognize and can fix or, you know, something out of place and boom, you've just helped that distro out. Absolutely, yeah.
3: In some cases, like for me, when I first got started, it was just because I saw a project that I wanted to use and it looked bad. (laughs) So... (laughs) I sent them some, like, icons, improvements, and stuff like that. They were like, oh, you want to help work on it? I was like, uh, sure, I guess. And it was just, then it just, you know, just became a bunch of other stuff, actually. So, so I'm
1: not the only one that worries about pixels?
3: Well, no, no. Okay. This is also, this is also like 2008, so everything was terrible. <laughs> but, but, um, uh, it, it was more like, I didn't want to be like the rude, like, Hey, this could be fixed, uh, completely. Here's how to, you know, do it right or something like that. It was just like these icons were like, uh, some of them were broken or some of them were just missing and stuff like that. So I just fixed those and then all of a sudden I became part of the project. Um, and it just kind of like that kind of thing happens that you just want to fix something small to you that they look at it as a very, a big improvement or something like that too. So, um, it's an easy thing to do is just like see anything that you might want to improve and uh, just ask them if they would be interested in you doing it. And 99% of the time it's yes. Yeah. And, and also please, yes, please, please,
4: please. And for those interested, if you want to see Michael's first work, just download Hannah Montana Linux and you can mm-hmm. see his contributions.
0: That was my second. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've come a long way, Michael. Right. Um, I mean, people say, uh, how do I contribute to Linux? It's like, well, just find something about your system that really annoys you. And just fix it, you know. Um, exactly. Sort of like, mm, I must find an issue that's, or I must find this new feature. But like, oh, that that kind of thing's a little bit. That's really, you know, rough edges. Not necessarily like literally broken, but you know, as you say, like icons and things like that. You can always always find something that's in your wheelhouse.
2: Yeah.
3: So that's that's actually a good transition to something that's not necessarily broken, but a fantastic improvement. And the reproducible builds organization. Mm. So you're, you're heavily involved in the organization, but could you tell our audience about like what are reproducible builds and tell us a little bit more about the organization?
0: Oh, well, I mean, reproducible builds. Um, so I guess the background is that whilst um, you can download the source code for um, any piece of free software by definition and you can analyze it for security vulnerabilities. Um, um, ones you know, Accidental ones, or um, you can analyze it for malicious code that's been added. Um, whilst you can do that for the source code, everyone pretty much installs binaries, like they're just doing apt install blah, they're doing zip install, you know, whatever um, from stores and things like that. And so we don't really have this—we don't have a real promise that the, the those binaries actually correspond with that source. You have no idea that someone's not added in an extra bit of source. Um, a bit of a source code before compiling it or the compiler could be compromised and things like that. Um, and this is a big problem because, um, what, as you, as I say, you could, you could just go on GitHub and see the source code for Nginx. But if the binary that you install doesn't correspond to that source code, you are basically running untrusted code. Is this really sort of, is this really fulfilling the sort of original promise of free software in a sense that you have real control over your system? Yeah. So This is a problem in that um, uh, because um, people are using um, binaries, it means that uh, build farms, you know, sort of com- compilation farms and like that become targets for um, malicious actors. So if I compromise uh, the Debian build servers, um, I could get, I could basically rootkit thousands and thousands of machines all in one go. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's that's pretty good. And if you looked at the source code, it looked absolutely fine. But as I'm sneaking something in at the last minute the binaries. Uh, So there's no corresponding thing between the two. It also means that um, um, developers themselves become targets. Um, So if you were producing ISO images for something, you might publish all the source code. But um, if uh, some malicious actor turned up to your door and said, hey, can you just add this extra bit of code in before you release it, that'd be pretty great, you know? That's <laughs> how you got here, you know? Uh, that kind of thing. Or they just simply compromise your your personal laptop to add um, backdoors and things like that. Yeah. This this means that, like, individual developers are targets for um, attack and things like that because of this inability to um, validate that binaries that you're running on your system correspond to original source code. And reproducible builds are um, solve this by... Um, uh, first promising that every time you build a piece of software, you get the exact same source. So if I build a piece of software, um, you build a piece of software, we get the exact same files at the end, bit-for-bit, bit, identical results. Um, after after you've made the build do that, what you do is you just ask everyone to do that, and you come to a consensus over what the correct um, results should be for this compilation. And from that, you can work out whether... Either everyone's been compromised, so everyone's machine has been rootkitted to add these extra stuff into the binaries, or if someone sticks out, um, if someone's binary sticks out as being different, then it will. uh, You can sort of flag and be like, "Oh, I wonder why this person is different." Yeah, yeah, that's really
4: interesting. But how does how does a normal user? Is it something behind the scenes always, or is it something a user could use to validate or? Is it just a behind the scenes platform
0: it's it's mostly um mostly a behind the scenes platform and that it's just another sort of security guarantee mm-hmm. say um um almost like a seal of approval you might you might see you know pr- um it's another way of just leveling up the security of the whole infrastructure as a whole mm-hmm. users themselves of course could reproduce any particular build they want, but I don't particularly envisage you know the average user wanting to recompile LibreOffice to check whether
2: right.
0: they, they could sort of somewhat trust that um, if there's been a sort of uh, consensus that the correct LibreOffice is, is the one that they're installing then they're fine, yeah.
1: Well, it's always good to have those checks uh, in place because uh, in the world we live in you need those. Mm-hmm. But you're also involved in several other open source related projects, so What have been your favorite to work on? And by the way, um, I'm going to show a screenshot of your project's page, and it just scrolls (laughs) and scrolls and scrolls. (laughs) But what's been some of your favorite to work on in general, even outside of Debian?
0: Oh, well, I mean, the first thing to say is, um, yeah, those have been accumulated over the years, and not all of them are, shall I say, up to date. But um, the one community I've really liked to work with is the Django community. Um, okay. And not only because the, the code base for Django is really good, but I just love how their um, their approach to stability in terms of versions and things like that um, has really sort of spoken to my sort of software engineering principles, philosophy, things like that. They're really on the same wavelength. Um, code quality is very high, um, great... Emphasis on code reuse and things like that. So a lot of my, a um, lot of the projects on that page that I think you're showing is our Django sort of extensions in a sense. But I've also worked on Django itself. Um, again, it's just been really fast interacting with them. They're been very happy to receive patches and things like that. And it's a it's a great friendly community. So if anyone's into Python and looking for broken things, they want to want to you know right at the edges, then Django is certainly a community I, would, I would push
4: people towards. I mean, that's one of the languages I'm trying to learn now, Python, because it just seems like such a language that's more and more useful as you go that other projects, a lot of projects are adopting and that you can do neat things with, whether it be on the web, which I think is the Django version, right? Where you can do things yeah. with Python on the web uh, or even in, right. you know, applets and that type of stuff that you're running. So, what convinced you to go from we kinda of talked about your history with Linux and things, but what convinced you to go from a contributor to a project lead for Debian? Um,
0: I'm not in I'm not entirely sure really. I mean I just thought I would ask there certainly many um <coughs> um previous project leaders that I really respected. And so, you know, sort of ten years ago going into Debian, I'd say, Oh, I know that, that person's a project leader, you know. Mm, yeah. Of course, of course they are. I mean, yeah, it's a really a well respected role. And I never really thought about ever running myself. I guess I just thought that I could probably bring something else to the table or, um, just basically give back to Debian in some way. Cause I've sort of Thanks. learned so much from it. I also thought that by being part of the leader, right, that could be um, an even bigger contribution, um, in, in that sense. Yeah. And also maybe I could bring I like used to work for quite a few years in the um, in the London startup scene and I thought maybe there were some things that could be um, not everything in there is is, is great to, to steal but I certainly sort of stolen ideas from Debian and free software and brought them to um, companies I was working for there so yeah I thought maybe there'd be some way of, of giving back in that sense if that if that makes any sense
1: yep. Mm-hmm. So, so you're not only the project lead, but you were re-elected for the project lead, which recently in April. So that says something. So congratulations on being yeah. re-elected. So what is involved in the election process itself? And, you know, what are your primary job duties as the project lead?
0: Um, so the, the election process is, um, takes probably around six weeks. What happens is that, um, there's first a call for, um, um nominations and you, You you nominate yourself, saying, "You know, um, I'd like to stand," and then you submit a platform. And then there's a um, a discussion period of about three or four weeks, where um, people ask you questions about your particular platform. The platform is uh, probably a a thousand, two thousand words of "This is what I intend to do." Um, This is how I think I could improve on the previous years. Um, uh, Stuff you intend to do in terms of goals, uh, perhaps what you're not going to do and uh, things like that uh, what you see the future vision for the project is things like that um and after that there's a um a voting period where people um just submit votes uh, using um via email actually and at the end the uh, the the winner is is announced so it's a web based one based on discussions um revolving around a mailing list mostly yeah.
3: so how many virtual yard signs did you have to put out <laughs>
0: uh. <laughs> Uh, well the the platform is the main one but yeah um, okay. responding sort of coherently on the on the uh, vote discussion mailing list is obviously required as well having okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well you mentioned in your re-election blog post that being the project lead is is difficult uh, what convinced you to stay as the lead to re- to to re-try to, to become the you know be re-elected for it
0: well one thing i thought was quite difficult is that it, it takes quite a while to get going um so, I mean, I, I felt that after sort of eight months into my term, I was thinking, you know, I haven't really, I mean, I've done a bunch of stuff, but I'd like to really get to the whole, you know, sort of the meaty things that perhaps, and certainly some of the things that I referred to in my original uh, platform. And I was, uh, I just thought that, you know, I could really have a proper run at this if I just have another, if I would, you know, be very graciously, um, given another term. Um, and so that was that was primarily the reason in terms of just the ramp up speed being quite significantly longer than I thought. So that was one reason I decided to um, to rerun for this year. And also, you know, after um, speaking to quite a few friends, and they they said, you know, this is this is clearly that position clearly needs a, a fair amount of of getting up to speed and things like that. And there's quite a lot of things going on behind the scenes. Um, that are quite draining, so you can't you can't be always pushing on the headline um, and uh, publicity generating initiatives. Sometimes you just have to just reply to all those private emails sent to you and things like that. So,
4: so what are some of the difficult parts of the job that people don't see that you have to do, or maybe it's not even just difficult, just those parts of the job that take up a you know some some time that people don't realize you have to do as a project lead.
0: Well speaking to the, the latter ones, the, the time um time intensive ones might be perhaps um uh, all things to do with sort of finances. The the Debian project leader is sort of the arbiter on, you know, oh someone wants to go to this conference or run this particular event, things like that. Um the they're the arbiter and like, Oh yeah, well that's a sensible decision to spend Debian funds on. So sort of liaising with that and it um, certainly takes some time and lots of emails back and forth. Um in terms of the difficulty, there's a, I mean, it's a very, it's a very mature project and, um, and a very huge project. And as, as part of that comes with a few personality conflicts and we're certainly worldwide. So we get quite a few cultural, quite a few cultural differences, should you put it that way. And so some of the need ironing out and not a, not a, not all of those sort of discussions would be suitable to have in, in, in public sort of mediation mm-hmm. style. Um, um, between two teams, or like working out whether someone's disappeared, or or um, and things like that, or, or just plans that are in progress. You know, if someone's, um, if a sponsor is thinking of pulling out, you don't, you can't necessarily, it wouldn't necessarily be appropriate to discuss that immediately on on a public mailing list. Stuff is sort of um, sort of occluded from the rest of the community, and you're sort of battling battling things in your inbox, and mm-hmm. can't really tell anyone. What's going on? That that can be a little bit.
3: Yeah, if you if you don't if you have an issue in the in the future where you can't you know provide the public information about that kind of thing, feel free to send us an email and we'll help. We'll take care of it.
0: Sure, no problem. Yeah, (laughs) it's not as if anyone got into free software for the fame in the first place, but um, (laughs) yeah, you you just sent you spend two hours on an email and uh, and uh, everyone's like, oh, you know, what have you done today? Oh, um, nothing.
1: Well, it, that Tom brings me, me head to head. my question, is what does a typical day of Chris Lamb look like? Is it making out emails towards for Debian? Is it packaging projects? Is it all of the above?
0: Pretty much all of the above. Um, just, I'll sort of wake up and um, do a bunch of hacking, i reply to emails, see what's come in, more emails come in whilst you're doing that, things like that. Um, Try and, try and basically try and stay on, on top of the inbox of the, the, the leader, um, the leader at Debian.org inbox because that, that can run away with itself very easily and you get behind and you start to lose emails and things like that. Also, um, a big part of it is um, following up on people who have not responded and, you know, they're very, busy. obviously everyone's very busy um, everyone's got very lots of calls in their time. So, I mean, doing quite a few follow-ups, I'm like, oh, hey, just wondering how far you got on this, you know, just checking up on, on the status of this or, um, wondering whether you had any further thoughts on, on, on why that. So yeah, that's, that's probably my sort of day-to-day leader uh, responsibilities.
5: Cool. Um, so you've been with Debian, as you say, probably since around 2008. How has Debian's approach or ethos changed over the years from when you started oh good question
0: so i would say in general it hasn't changed that much um i would say the general principles of you know free software um and particularly the particular style of the community hasn't changed i mean there's certainly been some angles that have changed um but perhaps those are also reflected in the wider community as well so um more um i guess it'd be fair to say emphasis or more consideration towards trying to include more diverse groups of, of people um and that's certainly not um unique to debian but i i think it would be fair to say that debian is one of the slightly more progressive ones in that in that sense we had a code of conduct many years ago We've had um, diversity and um, bursaries for projects um the, the Debian women sub project has been active for what, a decade, maybe, maybe more, um, and things like that. So, and we'll be, we're a, a big, um, a, a big member of, um, Google summer of code, um, and, um, the outreach project as well. So yeah, I mean, that's certainly one angle that's changed. Um, but the general, the general ethos is pretty much how it was before. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of the, which is actually part of the charm of Debian in the sense that it, it's not subject to, it's not really subject to fashion, let's put it that way.
2: Yeah. Um, and yeah.
0: which, which in some senses is something a bit of a shame because you're sometimes slightly behind on certain, certain things, certain technologies. So, um, I'm not going to say behind because that adds a sort of moral component to it, but, um, or at least a judgmental one. Um, can things like flat pack and, and snap, we aren't, I think it would be fair to say we aren't leading the way in terms of snappy and, and flat back adoption,
2: you mm-hmm.
0: know, anyway. Um, but that's sort of, that's sort of part of the, the charm of it, that like the, because the, all of those things could disappear tomorrow and things like that. So it's just sort of slow and steady adopting what has um, been sort of proven to work and things like that. So it's like, okay, good. We're now on this. Great. Which, as I say, part of the charm because it, it makes it very reliable. Um, Particularly for companies that just sort of to or people who just want to get stuff done with their computer, they're not they're not really bothered about um, the means in which they um, get a particular piece of software, but they just want to make sure it works, and they want to make sure it works tomorrow, and they want to make sure it works tomorrow exactly the same way, and they've just got other stuff to do. You know, Um, is there
4: anything within that approach you're wanting to change that you haven't had? A chance yet, or the team wants to change. You, you know, we talk about the stability and all of that, and that's the charming part of it. But is there some things within it that you guys want to change?
0: Uh, a lot of the things I'm really thinking of are parts of the infrastructure, uh, not not necessarily user-facing things. Although user-facing things, I'd certainly love to push for. Um, I can't think of a better word right now, but a slightly more sexy website, for example, mm-hmm. um, particularly particularly one that might be uh, attuned to a, a new user. I mean, one one um, handicap that Debian has is we sort of have this sort of curse of, of knowledge in a sense that, you know, on our homepage, we'll put very technical, quite technical details about, you know, what architectures and things like that, which is great. It's all correct. But um, someone who's new to Debian, that's not necessarily um where the head is at. So we often fail to have empathy for these new users and uh, to sort of learn.
4: I think it's amazing how in touch you are with that because I'm one of the newest users of Linux on this channel. I've only been in Linux for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. When I go to the Debian page, it's great. The information's there. But you're right, it lacks that kind of, hey welcome come to me the information's there but it's just text right it's text and yeah. a logo and that's it which is yeah. fine ultimately the information's there but um it, you know the, some of these sites and things for distros definitely have that feeling like ooh i'm downloading something that's latest you know cutting edge that's you know and and, and gives you that feel and and debian when you go to that page doesn't necessarily uh, give you that feeling right away but you guys are in touch with that you see it and, you know, I assume it will be something you guys work on in the future, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. It's always something we've got our eye on. But, um, this general idea of sort of empathy is, it sort of runs throughout, throughout Linux as well. I mean, for example, including examples on manual pages is quite rare. Um, you know, we'll add all these options and we'll be very specific. And, and you're right. The, uh, we'll have all the information, but are we really communicating?
3: I'm, I'm not
0: sure. Are we successfully communicating what? A new user wants to, to learn. Um, well, right.
3: but my my experience with a lot of the web, Debian developers and users who were like in the the like the, the core like fandom, I guess, is uh, the they would when I would say when I first tried to convince them that the website is uh, needs an update, they were, a lot of them would come back with saying no, it's it's perfect. It gives you all the dot the knowledge that uh, that it, that's available in Debian and stuff like that. And then like so, then I asked them a question and like so how do you find this particular thing? And then they go through this 20 minute process to get to it. I was like, well, that's, that's the problem. And so like the, the website is like full of information, but you have to know how to get to that information for it to be like, be utilized by so So someone who's never, you know, spent that much time into like the, the intricacies or the technical stuff, they would be probably pretty lost in it. So like, I'm, I'm, Excited to hear that you know there's some kind of effort going to be put into like the the Debian website because, um, not to be rude, but it, it needs it. <laughs> so, cool.
4: Yeah, it's such an important. Can you project. tell
3: Michael is into website design? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean
0: that's what he does for a living. I'm
3: a, I'm a, web, I'm a web designer, so yeah. <laughs> it's,
0: uh... No, I understand. And if you um, if you already know the information, then well, and you know where to find it, well, then great. You know, website yeah. that information isn't for you i mean right yeah yeah i mean it the, um this is not an easy task because the the website is in oh, tens of languages it's um absolutely vast um mm. in terms of the um information that it has and some of it's split between that and the wiki and things like that so it's these kind of this isn't sort of a, a facelift i mean you can't just like slap a theme on this and it solves a problem this is a um, otherwise, that'd be that'd be pretty easy. You, know, you Just put a bunch of JavaScript. Everyone loves that, and then everyone everything will be happy. But it's more of a restructuring from a what do they call it? Information architecture, I believe, is the technical term, point of view.
4: So, as a project lead, do you find that? now you get more or less feedback from the community, you know, like from the website and things like that, are more people reaching out to you than ever? Or is there kind of a filtering of information? Because a lot of us are also managers or leaders in our various, you know, jobs, real life jobs outside of the podcast. And sometimes there's that filter that happens, you know, uh, towards uh, the leaders and things where you're not getting as much information from people.
0: Oh um absolutely not. I've been almost um overwhelmed with the feedback and things like that um I think um I, and I would love probably to get more every month I post my sort of bits from the Debian project leader uh, to the the developer mailing list saying this is what I've been up to and always um, always solicit feedback and um, comments and things like that and often I'll get. Um, main many emails from not necessarily developers, but people on the periphery saying, oh, yeah, what about this in Debian, things like that. So it's nice. just things on my radar, and things like that. So have you thought about integrating with this? Like, oh, I've never even heard of those two technologies. <laughs> things like that. It's really good, yeah. Um, so definitely get more feedback. um and Yeah, so that's really good. None of, none of it's ever hidden. And also get more feedback from various teams within Debian. So we a very flat hierarchy. So there might be if you were drawing it you might put the, the project leader on the top, but it's very, very flat. And so the, the teams might come to you saying, Oh, we're having this sort of problem or uh, we don't seem to have enough um have enough sort of hours in the day. Can have you have any ideas about this or we're having problems interacting with this other team? Can you help out with that? So I'm certainly getting more feedback along those lines as well. Really? about the project. So
3: speaking of the the project differences for, like, new users and stuff like that, when they're trying to learn the different intricacies of Debian, Uh there are four release types. I mean, technically, I don't know if the experimentals would be considered a release, release branch, but uh, stable, testing, unstable, and experimental are the current, like, the release branches, I suppose. Um, stable provides, like, the obvious... What the name implies is the staple release, and then they have you have testing and unstable. Would is would it be possible? would it, if a user wanted to get the latest applications? Do you think it would be possible for them to install Debian and use the unstable packages without worrying about like if it's going to mess up the whole OS? Because we've had we've seen missed, uh, mixed opinions on that particular topic.
0: Oh, I'm, I've um, I've got very strong opinions on this. So this is probably the the probably the worst named thing in debian so <laughs> you you said oh you have the stable distribution and yeah, as the name implies i think i'm quoting you. so yes, yeah the stable distribution is is very stable in in the sense of um it's like a rock you can build pretty much anything on it it's got security support for a gazillion years now <laughs> <Brilliant, great. laughs> that's a long time <laughs> it is it is quite a long time yeah um well up to tw- we joke that it's got security support up to you know 2038 because then you're you're your 32-bit timestamps are, are so um, so yeah it's got it's got from like you know you, you'd build you know you, you'd build servers and stuff on that if you're right but the stable and unstable really refer to the version numbers not necessarily the, the stability of mm-hmm. the software so uh, I mean in stable the version numbers stay the same well because they have to because if the if we were giving you new upstream versions of everything, every week or whatever in in your server that wouldn't actually be very very good you know you want it just to you want to install it once and two years later oh look it's doing the exact same thing brilliant <laughs> moving on right great um so unstable whilst um um it, it's it's actually probably it's extremely it's probably the biggest misconception in debian in the unstable is too unstable to run but as it refers to the version numbers it just means that it's got the latest and greatest software. It's, um, it often is, is, can be, particularly what you're after, it can be less buggy than the, the stable version. Because if you fixed a particular version, as in the stable release of Debian has a particular version of something, and, um, the new, a new upstream comes along and, and fixes your particular niggle that you've contributed upstream, perhaps, um, then unstable will be more stable than stable in the sentence. Um, yeah. In the in the sense that you know your machine isn't restarting, it isn't breaking all the time. Um, there is a bit of a meme that you know if you run unstable, it will break every week and you at <laughs> it. But that that's just not just not my. Um, so why not change
4: the name? Why not just change it from unstable because that's got to yeah. be confusing to
0: just change. The name, you know? um, yeah. So, Unfortunately, no, not really. I mean, the, the first biggest problem as a bit of a joke, what would you rename it to? So just deciding, just to get everyone agreed on what would be,
1: be
5: a mammoth. <laughs> yeah, well,
1: you're right. I would say it would be a, a big test to get everybody agreeing. I mean, you, I think you yeah. should just change take take I I agree with
3: the statement about the the state stability versus the word stable because in development in programming the word stable has absolutely nothing to do with stability as far as releases and there's and I've I've actually advocated for a lot of projects to just use the word static because that's really what it's implying and it doesn't have any kind of like you know if you said freeze like a feature freeze or something that also sounds something like it could potentially be negative to some people. Whereas static, there is like, they might not understand what it means. And then just look it at it, look up you know, try to look it up, figure it out. But whereas stable, they already have like a misconception based on the word itself. So, Indeed, yeah. uh, you know, so like the, as far as stable goes, I'd want that to be changed to static. And as far as the unstable
1: momentum, so there you have it. We know. here have solved your problem. Solve. Yeah. <laughs> Destination I'll, Linux strikes again. I'll just,
0: I'll just commit that now. Yeah, I mean. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Cheers. Next. That was the, Cheers. that was my intent for
3: asking
1: that. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. It, All right. So yeah. I take it that it is safe to assume that you would recommend Debian over other distros to Linux users. Mm. So what are some of the key benefits of Debian over other options out there, in your
0: opinion? One is the um, basically the super stable for servers and things like that, or for any installation you just want to install it and basically not care about it for years or things like that. So I've installed Debian on many um, systems. Or family members and things like that. And they're still, still running and I've had to do, you know, no maintenance on them at all because they aren't having to upgrade every six months or things like that. Another, another key, another key benefit would be that it, it's not very opinionated. Um, which is sort of good in a, and it's quite conservative also. So it won't jump on the latest technologies immediately or just wait until just sort of wait and see and then be like, okay, this seems to be seems to be where the entire ecosystem is going. We'll get on that and things like that. And it's also sub, not really subject to any sort of leader's whims. So, the, as project leader, I can't just go in and say, "Oh, we're, we're now moving to KDE as the default." Just doesn't, doesn't really work like that. And this is this is a bit of a a, a double edged sword, as I referred to earlier, in that it's not necessarily the latest and greatest philosophies and ideas and software. But it does mean that if, say, you've built a business or you've built your life around the operating system, it's not going to change underneath you at any time. So, like, the desktop environment isn't... I'll just pick a random example out of the air. Say even you've um, invested considerable sums in, say, training staff or or family members to use a particular um, desktop environment, should we say, Um, and then suddenly the next release will just have a completely different one. Well... That's great. It's it might be objectively better. Um, but that sort of you know huge investment you've made in in, in training is now essentially wasted. And yep. that makes people quite quite nervous in a sense. Um and and rightfully so. It's also extremely lightweight, so you have um also and very, very versatile. So you have, you know, all sorts of bizarre projects like I think bizarre, uh, really useful projects like Raspbian based on Debian. Mm-hmm. Uh, love
4: that project, by the way.
0: Cool, yeah.
4: Yeah, that runs in my car, by the way. My my, my car runs Raspbian. And uh, so it only engages, though, for safety uh, when the car is in park, but the screen turns on, it runs Raspbian through a Raspberry Pi. The interface is through an HDMI. And it's just amazing how light and flexible it is. And, uh, and so there are a lot of great projects that stem from it being light, just like you said, and it's amazing and it's so stable.
0: Yeah. And it's sort of a bit of a toolbox to make your own sort of distribution. I mean, you have ones like, um, Yeah, uh, Kali Linux, the sort of security, yep. um, sort of cracker based, uh, angle and things like that. Uh, uh, you know. So yeah, it's sort of a, oh, here are, here are some ingredients to sort of make what you make a system out of what you want. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Rather than coming to you with a, this is our firm user focused philosophy and things like that. So yeah. Good and good and bad things about that.
3: Yeah, but if if at any point you'd like to do, like you know, advocate for Play to e-plasma as the default, I will support that platform.
5: <laughs> surprise, <laughs> surprise.
0: I, so, think, I think that would be easier than than the name of Unstable, but um, <laughs> it would still be, yeah, uh, still be a hard sell. An interesting discussion. A hard mm-hmm. sell, yeah.
5: Yeah. Okay. So one of the in- interesting differentiators um, on your FAQ page is that you offer email support mm. um, and that you state that a lot of messages are often um, replied to within 15 minutes. So how do you manage that sort of level of support? I mean, I think every company in the world will be crying if they could get, um, you know, a 15 minute response time from their, from their IT suppliers. So, so how do you, how do you manage that? Is it just your developers are so passionate and want to get problems solved? Or is that you as a project lead saying, look, we've got to get on top of this. We've said we're going to do it. We've got to get it right.
0: It, it's, um, certainly more of the former. It's certainly more organic process. Um, so, uh, in terms of you know, email support, we, it's not, there's a Debian-user uh, mailing list and that's um, got lots of users, lots of developers, lots of, as in develop, Debian developers and sort of uh, all sorts of uh, people in between if you see I any. Mean. And um, it's basically just a community run of um, thing. There isn't sort of a an endpoint that you, you know, there's no support at Debian.org and then you get like a ticket back and then we're, oh. we're working on your support ticket. It's much more of a community-based support effort. And so that's that's one way we... Um, so
4: you open-source the community. So anybody, it's not just you or the devs, but anybody who's a part of that community and knows the answer could respond to your email. Is that what you're Absolutely, saying?
0: Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. I, but also, it's not just who knows the answer. And someone, someone, oh, I'm having this problem installing this. And you're like, well, I don't know the answer, but I've got five minutes and it's kind of intriguing. So I'll just hunt around and, oh, now I've learned something. You've learned something. The community is, it's now... Publicly archived on the mailing list um, with probably some quite good search engine juice. So <laughs> maybe you will help other people. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, um, it's certainly a, a community organic thing. It's a, not a not a top down um, target metric based approach. Nice. And of course, many um, there's much more um, synchronous um, support channels. So, for example, um, hash Debbie and IRC channel is very active and things like that.
4: Very good. Yeah. Well, on top of the support, you guys also have an incredible library of software, 51,000 plus different pieces of free software. I tried to install every single one before this. No, I'm teasing. Um, So currently, Debian uses the Synaptic Package Manager, which, when you know, we're talking about the flair and the fancy, and I can't believe I'm going to ask this question because one of the things I hate the most about most distros is their Package Manager. But is there any plans for Debian to add a GUI-based package manager like Software Store or some of the others out there, or are you guys going to stick with Synaptic?
0: Well, um, can I ask why you think we we use Synaptic? I mean, Synaptic, uh, Synaptic is a um, graphical user interface uh, package manager. Are you p- perhaps thinking of another one? Or
4: No, I mean, that was when I installed it. That was what was there pre-installed was Synaptic, but...
0: Oh, okay. Is he, he's
3: well, referring to more of a, like a, a store, like an app store type th- approach.
4: Yeah, kind of like, you know, where they got the icons and it shows the picture of the, the various software, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. You Screen know, the, people are doing the more fancy looking software. Oh,
0: right, the GNOME software. Well, that'll certainly yeah. be the next release, uh, because I believe that's now in GNOME default, right? The GNOME.
3: Yes, um, GNOME provides it as, as a default aspect, yeah.
0: Yeah, so that, that'll certainly be part of the next um, distribution. Um, so all of these um, package managers are basically on top of apt, the underlying mm-hmm. underlying package manager that does sort of the system level things. So you can kind of choose your poison in the sense: if you just want to interact directly with apt, um, that's fine. If you want to use um, uh, GNOME software, you know a bit more, you know, oh, I want this. That sounds fun. You know, that's got a good icon. Bam, install that. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's all sorts of things in between, like the synaptic one. Um, a slightly ooh, old-fashioned user interface.
2: Um, mm-hmm.
0: Let's put it that way. And then there's things like aptitude, um, a terminal-based one, things like that. So there's, there's sort of countless ways to interact with the underlying apt package manager. Um, so we don't really... I wouldn't say that Debian uses synaptic in that sense. Like, Interesting. Quite, um, yeah.
4: So, I mean, to me, it's one of those new user things. So when I first got into Linux and you look at a terminal, that thing looks like, um, I don't know, space code. I know it, for, for us now looking at it, it's like, well, it's so simple and I can search for the apps I want. I can install yep. stuff. But when you're brand new to Linux, it looks completely like it's from outer space. And you generally just go online and you search for how to do stuff and you copy and paste it. So a lot of new people, like when I've trained new folks in Linux, they get you very used to at first always using those software stores because that's kind of their safety net. They don't want to touch the terminal at first. Eventually they get to the terminal because you almost eventually have to, as you start tweaking and using the power of Linux. And that's why it's kind of one of those first experience things where depending on the desktop environment you chose, and I think uh, XFCE was the one I chose with uh, the Debian install, so likely why I didn't see the GNOME installer and saw the synaptic uh, there as an option. Um, but you know, it's one of those first experience things that I was wondering if you guys were looking into. But it makes sense. I mean, you can install any of the the GUIs on top of it for sure.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the the first experience. I think is is key and. And, and really important to ensure that people, you know, essentially say Debian or impressed by it. And it's probably best seen as a whole, all the way from first hearing about Debian, like what, what, what do they hear about it? Um, then going to the website, their downloading experience, uh, yeah. they're getting onto a USB stick or whatever, all, all of those things need to work and be quite seamless. And including the, the sort of first boot experience, if it, you know, yeah. you just hit a terminal, it's like, well, <laughs> oh great, you know, thanks. Um and, and you're right, some of the, um uh, some, some of them are, are um, not as user friendly on the first boot as they as they should be and perhaps have slightly um, suboptimal defaults and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Debian is somewhat loath to change upstream defaults and fiddle too much with the first. We'd rather be quite a, a sort of pure, sort of purist in a sense and say, oh, this is this is pure GNOME and things like that. So that often has some, um, that obviously has some positives in that it's just like, this is the, the real GNOME experience. We aren't messing around with it. Some of the sort of the slightly rough edges, the slight integration things, particularly for new users aren't there. And it's often easy to sort of wave them away and say, well, you know, it's is fine. It's just a terminal. What are you talking about? Because we again need to put ourselves into the, into the mindset of a um, of a developer new to, or sorry, a user new to Debian.
3: Yeah, I think I think that the the, uh, the it's an interesting issue that Debian has to deal with because there's like the whole vanilla aspect of the DEs. So is like the the defaults chosen by Debian or just the DE like developers did, did it just use the vanilla structure. So in a sense of like if if the DE is making the decisions, maybe those app stores wouldn't be. Uh, an option in some cases
0: yeah i think i think that's that's right and there's certainly um a fair amount of inertia to change any default um from upstream's point of view Uh, so to diverge from upstream that's usually considered something that starts you know oh should we diverge from upstream on this well it starts with a 100 negative points yeah it
2: seems
0: like it should it should be you know changed if you need to sure but um, there should be a pretty good reason, not just because I'll oh, because I like it, you know, things like that.
4: Interesting. But
0: in terms of um, theming and things like that, that's slightly orthogonal. What we're talking about is, is slightly different to that. So, of course, we'll have a um, a, a new theme for every um, sort of beautiful artwork every release, and some great work by the um, by the artwork teams. Um, but we generally will err on the side of just giving you the vanilla. Desktop environment experience, which will vary between the two, between all the, um, all the desktop environments we provide. So yeah. <laughs> which also splits the work, which splits the hours, which means that each one gets slightly less time than, than we would love. But hey, that's, yeah, that's why, unfortunately. Gotcha. So uh,
3: of the 50, there's 51,000 pieces of software in the the repositories there's also new formats coming out for snap flat packs to add even more packages that don't necessarily have to be packaged in the repository. Mm
2: -hmm. Is
3: there any kind of, um, discussion going on in Debian about including the ability to support those formats? And if so, is there any kind of, um, is there any kind of like preference of which one would be more likely to become like supported first?
0: I see. So, um, Snap and Flatpak as uh, application distribution sort of methods, techniques, technologies. They aren't really Debian's number one priority in a sense. Right. They're not really something we certainly like to have everything within Debian to be within Debian proper rather than installed via via these other other mechanisms. And this number of reasons. I mean, one reason is because um, the philosophy behind Debian is very much aligned with free software. And often uh, if you're installing random bits of software from elsewhere, it may not actually be free. You know, it it could be, it could be proprietary software and that's not necessarily something that, it's not necessarily something that Debian developers want to spend their time on. If you see what I mean, helping other people install proprietary software. It's like, I, people might want it, but I'm just going to work on something else. Um, Right. (laughs) Because, you know, why not? It's their own time. Um, And things like that. Um, so yeah, there it isn't we don't have a um grand strategy and it isn't really on people's radar, the whole snap and flat pack um angle at the moment. Um but maybe that'll change. Um, it seems like a certain direction in which various bits of software are going in, particularly um, some quite core components like um like browsers and things like that. And so um some ooh, how should we say it? Some accommodation with these, um, new, new fangled do-hickeys might be, uh, might be needed, but, uh, um, right, right now it's not really that high on the list.
5: Mhm. Um, is, uh, you've, just explained why it's not high, high on the list, but is anything that to do with the, the sort of concerns that surrounding the security of it? Cause you've probably recently seen what's happened to snaps and they found some malware in it. Um, do you think this is a bit of a storm in a teacup, or should we be concerned that there's more options to get that malware in things like snaps and Packs?
0: Well, there's certainly cause for concern that it's sort of easier to get malware in. I mean, it's sort of double-edged sword in that these are uh, um, snap and flatpack offer some sort of containerization. so with um, they are in some senses more secure in versus you know, running typical binaries and stuff there's a bit of irony there um but that notwithstanding yeah i it's whilst it's a bit of a storm in a teacup i guess one promise that sort of debian and to linux distributions in general have uh, made over the years and it's now kind of implicit that stuff you install can be trusted and if that kind of goes away like that's not really that's really not to the
3: yeah, in that case, you'd be trusting the mechanism rather than the packages themselves.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's that's, that's right. Yeah. So I mean, great other ways of getting malware into your system. Yeah, and then this age-old, uh, millennia-old um, trade offs between convenience and security. And, and-
3: how does the Debian um, project how how do they feel about the non-free repo that's available? Is that that's more of a necessity thing?
0: It's certainly on a, um, necessity. It's, um, there's a big debate in Debian uh, ongoing for many years that whether it's part of Debian or not. So, I mean, depending on your point of view, it's, um, it's not part of Debian. We don't say it's deliberately off to one side saying don't use it. It's not, it's not turned on by default. So you have to enable it and um, here the dragons. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't. People aren't um, adding packages to that without good reason, and they you know, need to justify why something does go into the non-free um, section. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, the ideal goal, the platonic idea would be that the number of packages there just goes down to zero as we get free drivers, free firmware for everything, um, and things like that. So yeah, the other problem is that sometimes you need your Wi-Fi to work. So... <laughs> I do need to make this sort of firmware available in some ways, but to, yeah. It, yeah
3: it's uh, reluctant necessity. It's really.
0: Reluctant necessity, and I, I was, yeah. And and the more it can just go away and, and die, it'll be, it'll be great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: All right, so let's uh, switch gears and talk about the installer for Debian. So... Sure. This is one thing, well, one thing I love about the installer for Debian is that it flew through all of my partitions. So unlike other installers and I'm looking at ubiquity right now, (laughs) just sits there and hangs and hangs and hangs on my hard drives that I have in the computer. But uh, the installer flew right through it and you pretty much can customize it to your individual needs. I mean, it's got so many options for. Everything from the partitions down to the users and everything. But it, it does introduce a, not a problem, but it introduces more screens for newer users. Like, uh, whether to, uh, have a separate root, uh, password where some installers will combine that. Uh, it has a lot, a couple of screens. If you do want to manually partition to go through it, you have to go in and out of a few screens. So it's not complex by any means. Um, But is there any plans on consolidating some of the things and go the route of uh, Ubiquity where it's more user-friendly?
0: So, I mean, just to explain why there's many screens and things like that, particularly um, particularly when you have like things split between multiple screens, um, one massive benefit of Debian installer that's perhaps not um, obvious to most users is that it's entirely scriptable. Um, Using the um, uh, using a a mechanism called pre-seeding, so this means that you can have quite complicated scripts to deploy, you know, thousands of Debian machines and install them using the installer in in, uh, using a sort of recipe and things like that. And you can fine-tune everything from um, you can use percentages based on the disk you want installed and things like that. Um, So yes, this sort of the ability to automate the installation later or the uh, just the ability to automate it, should I say, is, is one of the reasons why it has some of this, um, why it makes trade-offs in terms of um, user interface and user friendliness. Uh, to speak to um, future improvements, um, there's always things that sort are of being sort of changed around to make them a little more easier to use or people uh, users will say, oh, I did this wrong and maybe the, the wording can be better and things like that. There's those kind of changes. But there's also... Um, I think I've seen some work over the past week in uh, making the live installation images installable using um, Calamara's, the Mm. uh, cross-distribution installer. Uh, And that might be um, one avenue. It does sort of, again, split the work between um, the Debian installer proper and this Calamara's-based approach. But um, I can see one working for one type of user and one working for the other. And that that is the Debian ethos um, in it. That'd be very cool. Yeah. Mm. yeah.
4: So talking about that, what what is the type of user that Debian's going after? Are you guys interested? You know, when we're talking about even in the installer, there's a lot of network-related questions and things in there that you may not see, say, in a typical Ubuntu installation where they may be more geared towards a desktop user. Are you guys more geared towards a system administrator style server or are you guys going after everyone? From a user standpoint?
0: I would, I would say we're going after everyone in the sense that we're pretty agnostic over who we go for. And because that immediately makes trade-offs in terms of some user experience and first run, um, sort of viewpoints, it invariably uh, will attract and be more appealing to say someone on the system administration side of it rather than someone who's never used a computer before. I think that's just, it, it more follows that way around rather than we are targeting sysadmins and things like that. Uh, sysadmins find us and use us. Um, but yeah, it's more that like, oh, let's just kind of make as few, let's just provide the tools for, for people to sort of make their own computer in that sense. Um, and not make, not get in the way, not, you know, just, yeah,
4: yeah. Do you think that's a misconception about Debian that it's not for new people? Do you hear that ever or? Is that not something you, you
0: get feedback on at all? Um well I hear that fairly often. Um, mm-hmm. sometimes I agree with it, sometimes I don't. I'd certainly agree with some of the um the things you've raised before, like the um uh sort of package managers and first run experience, particularly your first experience as a Debian installer. It's mm-hmm. asking you about host names the, or whatever. Host or domain name <laughs> of your network yep. like Um yeah, sure. Um but I think this is—it's difficult to be everything to everyone. Um, it is. If you want to be a generic tool to, yep. for you to sort of build your own computer networks and systems, etc. And so on.
3: So that you're more and more about the foundational aspect of Debian. Debian is, Debian is like always been, and to me, is known as like the foundation of mm-hmm. other like other projects and stuff like that. So you're saying like because of this. Um, this approach that the, the idea of it being a foundation is pretty spot on then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, I think that's a really good way of putting it. And it's hard to sell that. You know, we're a foundation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> who, wants, yeah. who, who wants that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
5: So during that installation process, um, you do get the choice to install a variety of desktops. So when you do a reinstall. What desktop do you choose more often than not?
0: Well, well, to reinstall, uh, I'm not sure. I've <laughs> <laughs> with, with Debian, you get some really quite aged and ancient installations. Um, after releasing the installation birthday package, I mentioned um, people were re- you know reporting a you know, ten years. It wasn't rare at all. Wow, uh, oh, my. Yeah, I mean, because you just don't need to, whilst it may have, that particular install may have moved between many different laptops because they've been dropped or drinks spilled on them, et cetera. <laughs> and pubs and barbecues. So what so I think
1: he's saying is, is, is he's not a distro hopper. Is that, I think that's what I was he's just saying. I'm
0: like <laughs> not even a distro reinstaller. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, um, I tend to, I, what I have for many years used the awesome window manager, a tiling window manager. Nice. So whilst I would, I generally tend to use sort of GNOME applications-ish on top of that, like I will go for the, um, I'll use GIMP over the so the KDE ones or the, um, I'll use Shotwell over the, um, the, the KDE equivalent. Um, but that's just a bit of a legacy, so I think I first installed GNOME and things like that. So, but basically I'm a sort of tiling window manager, uh, person and now can't
4: Have you tried i3? Have you tried
0: i3 yet? (laughs) No, I haven't. Sell me on it.
4: Listen, there are, (laughs) there are awesome window manager users, there are open box window manager users, and then there are the i3 window manager users. It will change your life. That's as good of a sales pitch as I can do. Really (laughs) dude? (laughs) <laughs> no, Awesome actually is fantastic. So I can't really sell it over that, but i3 is one. If you like playing with Windows Managers, I think you'll enjoy a lot, mainly because there are so many amazing configurations out there that people have already done that you can incorporate and play with to make it do some really unique stuff. So um, it's a lot of fun to play with. It's not any better. That was a joke. What he's There's trying to say
3: is that Awesome is an interface, but i3 is an interface cubed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. How's that yeah. sales
0: pitch, Chris? Are you gonna download <laughs> it right now? That's that's pretty good. I'm I'm <laughs> sold.
1: <laughs> so, do you have any user data, user data, or perception on which desktop environments most people use when they install?
0: So we the um, we'll choose the default one, which is uh, no. It uh, has been for a few years. Um, there are, um, yeah. But you, if you go around a Debian conference, most, most people, if they're running one of the, um, you know, the top, the top four desktop environments, they're probably running GNOME, um, too. Um, but, uh, actually at the, at the developer conferences, a lot of people are running tiling window managers and, um, all sorts of bizarre setups.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear that, Rocco? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Whatever.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Rocco's not a fan of tiling managers only because I use one. That's why.
1: Is that why? <laughs> that may be the only reason why. No. <laughs> All right. So you can pretty much, we've established you can pretty much install any desktop environment you want in Debian. Mm-hmm. Um And we know from talking to Martin Wimpers that he does some of the packaging and maintaining for the Mate desktop environment. So, do all of the desktop environments, all of the projects, do they take care of the package and the maintaining of it, or is that something that you guys work on as well?
0: It's a mixture. So um, there's, um, as I mentioned before, Debian works on a sort of team basis. So we'll have um, the GNOME team within Debian, the KDE team within Debian, uh, the Marfley team, et cetera. And the interaction between there and, and the upstream desktop environment varies between the, the environment itself. So um for example, I, th- the, I think the LXDE, uh, developers are now, uh, working almost, I wouldn't want to say exclusively, but they're working on Debian directly in a sense, like pushing packages into Debian and then letting them filter down into uh, the derivatives. I th- believe that's the case with LXDE. Whilst, uh, with GNOME, it's a bit more at a distance. So GNOME will release a new version and, um, And then the GNOME team will jump on that and package it and and ensure it's in Debian and things like that. So the relationship is, is different between all of these environments. Um, and obviously there's a lot of crossover between, uh, GNOME developers and Debian members of, sorry, members of the Debian GNOME team and things like that. And again, that will vary between the environments.
3: Right. Is there like a, like a percentage consistency, like, you know, yeah, consensus, like how often is it? that the DEs participate in that? Like, how, how often does... The, like, in the percentage of, like, different teams, how, like, for example, Martin's a part of the Mate team as well as the Mate Debian team. Like, how often does that overlap happen?
0: Oh, I wouldn't be able to say. Um, I think there's often... Often the core contributors are in that sense because they're just more involved in both communities. Um, okay. But I, I I can't... I'm not sure I can give you any numbers on that, unfortunately. Yeah.
3: I, I understand. I was just more of like a just, just curious kind of thing. So that's, that's – but it's, I was like, I, it's more of a, a fun topic. Um, there's a new – like the, the new release of Debian will be Buster. Mm. And I'm just curious, like what are your favorite things that will be coming in Buster for the people who like to use on the, the stable release?
0: I, the big thing is um, I'm really forward to the new versions of um, – the latest version of Gnome and things like that. I think they've really done a whole bunch of, um, cool stuff in the past, in the past year since the last recent Debian stable release. And so I can't wait for that to hit the stable distribution because then, well, I can upgrade all my family's machines to it.
1: <laughs> uh, Ryan, did you hear that? So, um, yeah, I he's hear a Gnome it. fan. And he's yeah. a Gnome fan. See?
0: Right. Well, yeah. But also I'm, um, um, the same for, um, sort of KDE Plasma and things like that. That'll, that'll be in the, um, the next, um, stable, that'll be in plaster. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much sort of more of the same, just like everything updated, the, the same promises that, you know, um, you know, being very stable in the, in the in the normal sense of that word. Um, yeah. So pretty much like more of the same in terms of, you know, great. Everything is, everything's ticking along. Brilliant. Great.
4: Nice. I could tell Chris is a fan of this show. You know why? Cause he's hit on everyone's favorite. He's been kind to everyone's favorite de- window managers, Gnome, KDE, Xfce, right there, bam. You're, good. <laughs> You're real good, sir. <laughs> you appease us all. So there are a lot of different distros based on Debian, and Ubuntu is, of course, a major one out there. And I was just curious, how does the collaboration work? How, how are you guys collaborating with all of these different entities that use you guys as a foundation?
0: Well, most of the time, um, a lot of the development work um, that is sort of done intended for one of these um, downstream distributions, should we say, is done directly in Debian. So a lot of the um, core very low-level toolchain stuff, for example, um, new GCC versions, new uh, versions of LibC, new Python versions, things like that, that work is done directly in Debian, um, even by, say, Ubuntu um, employees, uh, because that's just a sensible and, well, sort of good way of, yeah, sort you of know, community, um, community blah, um, or is the way of doing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, yeah, a lot of the time, it's just the work is being done directly there, I and mean, it's just become so much easier for that to filter down, um, and there's no um, impedance mismatch between the two and things like that. So I think that's... Um, that's probably why the um, LXD developers are, are pushing a lot of stuff into, into Debian directly. Um, a lot of it just happens directly. So nice. there doesn't necessarily need to be any outreach from Debian to the downstreams because they're already just sort of coming over to our house and, and fixing it up. Gotcha. And then after a short delay, their house is also fixed up magically. So
1: <laughs> That's brilliant. I love it. Well, Debian is used everywhere and by a ton of different companies and organizations. Uh, Ryan, you had showed us an article about uh, the International Space Station.
4: Yeah, how cool is that, man?
1: <laughs> so this was obviously back in 2013 that they switched to Debian, but it's still something that should be mentioned. So I was looking further into that, and there's an article about um, them testing out a Linux computer for future missions to Mars. And that came out in 2017. So they're building on this and building on this and they have their own secure OS Linux that they, which is a Debian based specialized Linux for them. So all of this being said, there's a lot of people that use Debian, but they're in the installer. You have an option for the popularity contest. So what I'm looking for is there's a lack of verifiable, user data in the Linux world in general so how valuable is this information to you and to distro developers to have information of who uses it and when
0: so it's sort of valuable but also this is really at odds with the whole idea of privacy so there should be absolutely no question that Debian should be calling home and, and revealing who you are and things like that and we'll always err on the side of of doing that Um, In terms of popularity contest itself, it's pretty um, it's certainly opt-in, but it's also pretty pretty coarse in what it tells you. Like, it'll just say I've got these particular packages installed, which is kind of interesting for making sort of broad uh, assumptions about um, what kind of people are using Debian for. But the opt-in rate is quite low, um, which is absolutely fine. I wouldn't want to we wouldn't necessarily want to see it any higher in the sense of it's really awkward to ask for people to right. um, sort of like leak their privacy in a sense so it's certainly not erring on the side of that yeah
1: well the other thing too is in the installer that it is on a by default you are opted out you have to actually check the button to opt in so i just wanted to say that michael Just saying.
3: And I just wanted to say he also said the opt-in percentage is very low. So there you go.
4: (laughs) So there's this ongoing battle, Chris, as you can tell of what some of the things that other distros are deciding for opt-in by default and things like that that goes back and forth because on one aspect, it's really neat to learn things like, for instance, the International Space Station is using Debian. It would be really neat to know that, you know, 50% of your users use a certain desktop environment, so you,
3: plasma naturally, <laughs> mm-hmm.
4: or a oh, window oh. manager. But um, and in a lot of times, a lot of these distros are doing very benign data. They're not, you know, collecting IP addresses and all this stuff. They just want to know here's some software you have on, here's the desktop you chose, blah blah blah. So, but there's this constant battle it seems within the community of people saying, is this an evil thing? Is this going the way of Microsoft? There's this fear of it.
0: I think that's right. Um and there's obviously the privacy concerns that you've just raised, etc. Um but also, I mean, how and it is neat to learn these things, but from Debian's point of view, it's not necessarily that actionable. So for example, if you learn that um uh fifty percent of people are actually using cinnamon desktop, let's say. And that was that's quite neat to learn because that's unexpected, would that mean that you would immediately jump from being a GNOME team member to a Cinnamon team member. I'm not sure. You'd just carry on doing what you were enjoying doing before. Uh, it isn't sort of a, there isn't like a top-down metrics-driven approach or even a top-down anything, really. It's like, go work on this. I don't want to. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so often learning about these things isn't that Yeah. And, and it certainly would be neat like having having that something I learned about the International Space Station stuff like that or um, uh, Google's internal operating system as in ones used on you know desktops and stuff that's been that's uh, based on Debian um, and things like that and it is kind of cool and I think I was in the latest um, at the latest developer conference and someone said oh yeah I rolled out you know 50,000 Debian machines to uh, big coffee chains um <laughs> in-house music system Wow! like oh when was that oh like two years ago so, oh right so I've been going to that coffee chain and I've been basically listening to and no, not even knowing about it and that's kind of <laughs> a bit sad because I didn't know about it but also just well because I didn't need to like great that's I think part of the charm you can just use it tell right. anyone it doesn't matter great I like it
5: mm-hmm so on the popularity side of things, um, there are a number of Debian-based distros that have been sort of like rising up the charts and people have been taking notice of them. Um, we've firmly established that you don't distro hop. Um, but do you...
1: We're working well, on him, Zeb.
5: We're working on him, yeah. <laughs> Do you run up the occasional virtual machine just to have a look at what these Debian-based distros are doing and to sort of think, oh, that's actually quite good, Will? We'll we'll nick that and we'll incorporate it in in the main Debian. Is that the sort of research that you do, or do you have other people who might do that sort of thing?
0: Um, it's certainly something I leave to other people. Um, I, just, I haven't really tasked anyone for doing that specifically, um, but um, no, I've just only got a finite number of hours in a day. So um, I mean, we have enough uh, different desktop just desktop environments within Debian itself. And I sometimes think I don't use some of the the, um, the rarer ones as it is. So to, to jump to other distributions is, is, is a bit of a stretch for my time, unfortunately. But yeah, mm-hmm. just, I'm certain there are things that would be immediately stealable. And-
5: <laughs> <laughs> well, open, open source. That's the beauty of it. Somebody, yeah, somebody's borrowing that idea. So yeah, we'll take that little snippet and we'll plug it into here. And that's just improved that side of it. Yeah.
4: There are some really fantastic work that people are doing with these Debian distros that I think are just uh, the theming, the integrations they do are just incredible. So definitely definitely take a look at some of them out there at MX.
5: Yes, I will. <laughs> definitely. I I
0: <laughs> if you plug it enough times. <laughs> Good to know, yeah. Um, yeah, I really should. I mean, and the ones I do check out a fair amount are... Um, because uh, things like Tails and things like that, mm, or, um, yep, Kali Linux and things like that. But that's often to use them for their utility rather than just as a um, sightseeing mission. Gotcha, right. Or a, a stealing mission, sorry. Yeah,
4: <laughs> a stealing mission. <laughs> There's a great book, Steal Like an Artist, yeah. A,
0: oh, yeah, it's good, yeah. yeah.
4: So Debian utilizes a lot of kernels, including the Linux kernel, of course, which we're all familiar with, the BSD kernel, and is working on support for the GNU Herd kernel. This is really interesting to me as a new user because I don't know all all these kernels and things that are out there and, and being supported. I hear about them, but I was wondering how much of your, is Debian engaged in that? Is that just something that's happening around you guys, these other kernels and their use of Debian, or is that something you guys are actually engaging in?
0: Um, well, just, just to give a, um not necessary correction, but the, the usage of those, of those non-Linux kernels is incredibly small. It's like a, a niche hobby group of a niche hobby group. So yeah, no, one's really, okay. no one's really running new herd on their, on their system. Really. Um it's not like a, it certainly won't be an installer option. Like, oh, you know, which of these three kernels do you want? You know, it's, it's not <laughs> that at all. Um, yeah. there are, the perhaps exception might be using the FreeBSD kernel with Debian that has a particular, um, cache in that you can use ZFS perhaps or the PF tables firewall, um, which is, which is great because if you have a, um, a large, say you're running a data center, most of your machines can be Debian, but the firewall machines you might want to use, uh, so you may want to use PF sense. But then if you do that, do you want to really run, you know, two machines running FreeBSD in terms of, um that makes your, um uh, architecture, th- those machines will then stick out and they'll always, you know, they won't work because your automation immediately. So those, um being able to use Debian with those non, with say the FreeBSD kernel means that your user land, you know, you can, you know, SSH use Bash and it just is just Debian, but underneath you've got, um PF sense and things like yeah. that. So that's but that's it's, it's extremely niche um and it's certainly not something that will be sort of even mainstream within debian um interesting but yeah mm-hmm. it's a mix all the way in, in a sense
5: yeah um so there's been a lot of um news lately that a lot of distributions were going to be dropping the 32bit support from their next release um is this something that debian is looking to do or will you be giving all those old machines a lease of life for a few years yet.
0: Oh, definitely giving them a lease of life for a few years yet. We have no, no plans to drop the i386 architecture for Buster. And, um, I'm not even sure it would be sensible to, um, to drop it for the release after that either. Um, would it
3: be still, is it, is, is the, would the mean be possibly to be accurate of 2038? <laughs>
0: I think it may be dropped before then, but yeah, um, <laughs> but yeah. Um, unfortunately there's, i mean even i three eight six is um as the architecture name is misleading because I think it needs a six eight six processor um due to some we compile making assumptions that you need at least you need at least a pentium or something like that
3: yeah. yeah, another interesting thing we talked about earlier about how Debian is used so is everywhere. Um, Google announced that Chrome OS is going to be using Linux apps inside of the, you know, Chromebooks as a, like a, like a virtual machine type of thing. And they're, they're it's called Crostini, but okay. they also announced that Crostini is actually powered by Debian. So what are your thoughts on this particular approach? And is there any involvement for the Debian project to be involved in this kind of a, this development? And if not, is there any interest in the project to do so?
0: Um there's certainly no official involvement or collaboration if there are contributions coming back to us um that's brilliant um and it's obviously great to hear Debian being used in yet another environment yeah I can't speak to Prostini and their virtual machine um approach uh directly i'm just not really that aware of it but yeah i mean or or and this is partly again partly people of debian they can just use it a toolbox, and brilliant, yeah, this is working for
4: us. Well, this is so amazing from an aspect of the number one sold laptop out there is Chromebook. And so every school, at least here around where I'm at, requires the kids to have a Chromebook. And that's the that's the, basically the learning platform that they're using. The operating system one because it's very inexpensive. You can get a Chromebook for 150 dollars, so it's it's very it's much more accessible than a lot of the other laptops. So the idea that now you are going to have these containerized Linux Debian morsels within the Chrome OS that kids are going to be exposed to early on really does, I think, create a huge potential for. A lot more users in the future of Linux. A lot more people growing up with Linux. Which, let's be honest, a lot of people utilize what they used in school, what they were taught on, as their main platform. So I think it's a huge advantage for Linux here, um, being put into more of these Chromebooks.
0: I'm a little, little hesitant on on jumping in as enthusiastic as you. I mean, yes, it certainly is Linux, but I mean my a lot of my family have android phones but are they really using linux in in the sense that you were implying i mean yeah they are they're running a linux kernel and they're running a whole bunch of gpl software but are they really using linux are they experiencing the the sort of um um some of the the real benefits of free software in that sense i mean the Mm Uh, the privacy and things like that. I, I'm not necessarily... Totally,
4: I would argue no. And I agree with you 100%. I don't think... I don't consider Android to be kind of a part of that. But I know what happens is like Crouton is what you would currently use to use Linux within a Chrome OS. And basically, you're booting into Linux. And it's a big thing that people do with their Chromebooks so that they can get access to those applications I think it's an exposure to open source software, whereas most people are going to use Microsoft Word, Adobe Premiere, all these things that aren't available in those environments. Now they're going to be using things like Caden Live, LibreOffice, well, all of these is that,
0: different. Is that the project? I mean, I, you know far more about Crostini and, and their... Yeah,
3: Crostini's intent is to allow the Chromebook users to use genuine Linux applications, but in a they're doing it in a virtualized machine that is like Debian powers their machine, but the apps. Are like the genuine things, and they're separated from the the Chrome OS approach of like the web apps and stuff. So you you okay. can still you. would It's not really a Linux distro because you you're limited in what it can do. But they're trying to add ability to use those applications.
0: I understand. Okay, yeah. So okay, I'm a less um, less to worry about it. I mean, because I mean, if it's just another Google Play Store, then it's like quote unquote great that um, uh, Debian is being used, but it's also not. That great. Right. Philosophically and ethically that it's being used to push, you know, non-free software and things like that. It's like, well, you know, that's, that's fine, but meh. Yeah. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> so speaking of Linux on a whole, if there was one magical thing that you could think of that would be a, a game changer for Linux to, um, grow and dominate the desktop market, what would you say that would be?
0: Um, well, the topics, well, I think two things, really. Uh, first thing, one topic we've touched on before, like, basically, um, being able to put ourselves in the, um, mindset of, of new users and things like that, because we all have the curse of knowledge. Or, I mean, even after a few months, you're already slightly au fait with the terminal, and so you just can't, and you just, very difficult to even teach someone how to use it, because you're just like, oh, you just use sudo and blah, blah, blah. And it's sort of like well, well slow down slow down that so I think that would that would require that's a huge mind shift change and that's really difficult to do um but also speaking to that I think also changing perhaps perhaps changing the whole messaging of getting um getting the um over so once you're in in the world you know the whole idea of free software and open source and stuff like that it, it's sort of a no brainer and like yeah of course it has all these benefits and things like that. If you go to someone random on the street and, you know, start talking free software at them, I mean, assuming they get the interpretation of the word free, right? It just not really sell, it doesn't just really hit home. It doesn't hit any of their, um, of the things that really affect their lives. So, I mean, perhaps changing some of the met- messaging. I mean, for example, you could say, you know, um, uh, speak to the, sort of the privacy uh, angle. I mean, that certainly is very, a, a bit of a meme in 2018 speak to the the privacy benefits of free software and open source um in terms of like your know, respects your freedom it respects your um your right to privacy it doesn't share your data by default it's just sort of just aligned in that way it's you know it's it's sort of good people in that sense um and then i think if people come for the for those benefits they will they will stay for the freedom if you if i can use that right sort of cliche yeah and i think that that kind of messaging change because the the technology is obviously sound i mean it already powers a whole bunch of um powers everything basically even a whole bunch of non-free platforms but i think um just just getting people over would be would be require sort of messaging and, and um presentation sort of angle change
1: yeah i have to agree because i think um communicating is probably one of the worst things that we as a community do uh, so i think that definitely should should change
5: yeah. Um, so the next question, um, can always, can sometimes make our guests cringe a little bit because it's like, Oh my God, who do I pick? Um, but who are some of the individuals in the community or that you work with that you think deserve some recognition? It's like the hidden heroes in the background that do all of this work and never get into the limelight. Have you got any oh, people that spring to mind?
0: I mean, immediately. Immediately, quite a few spring to mind, um, particularly in, in Delhi. I mean, we have a whole bunch of um, quite tireless administrative, administrative work being going on, particularly in the finance things. I don't necessarily want to name them, but um, they are basically pretty tireless in uh, sending invoices and following up with um, missing payments and things like that from you know, for servers and things like that. Our um, server administration team is pretty thankless job in that sense. Um, in that you also only they only hear about things when things are broken, and usually mm-hmm. by rate other developers saying, "Oh, why well, have you got my work?" So they obviously need some pep talks and recognition and things like that. Um, basically, just the organisers mm-hmm. who, you know, they aren't doing it for fame and things like that. So also people who are organising um, conferences, whilst there may be a, um, a head of the committee for this conference and someone who will open the, the conference it's usually tens and tens and tens of people in the background, you know, who've been toiling for months, you know, trying to get sort of consensus on mailing lists and things like that. And that's those kind of people who I'd want to sort of bring to the front. But ironically, they that's not why they were doing it in the first place. So they would actually mm-hmm. probably hate that. That'd be the last thing they want. That would actually put them off. If they, mm-hmm. they actually got fame, and if they got the recognition they deserved, <laughs> then they would actually not do it. But uh, yeah, it's a bit of an irony. Nice. Yeah. So,
3: so Wayland and Vulcan are some pretty hot topics uh, these days. So what is your take on Wayland and its uh, intent to replace X? Do you think it's going to be something like, you know, fairly soon in the terms of like the overall ecosystem, or is it going to be like what most people expect to be as like, more of a long-standing in, uh, goal?
0: Well, it's odd because a few years ago, I was thinking that you know we would sort of have it by now. Um, it, there'd be teething problems, etc. But um, actually, the sort of delay in it being mainstream has been a little bit surprising, particularly mm-hmm. how, you know how because how buggy X11 is, and also mm-hmm. because of the, the terrible security angles of um, um, X11 um, and things like that. Um, you would think that that would certainly push promotion. So it's very interesting to see some distributions rolling back Wayland's uh, decisions to go with Wayland and rolling that back. Um, but, yeah, I think it's another medium to long-term
5: thing that's going to happen. Yeah. So is this another 2038?
0: I don't think it's a 2038. I think it might be a, a 2028. <laughs> <Yeah>. No, <laughs> I, I, I think it's good uh, yeah, yeah.
4: I think it's good that this is one of the areas where I think Debian, you know, being kind of watching before it makes decisions is so important because, we don't think about the fact all the time that certain distributions who've rolled out Wayland just cut off 78% of their user base because 78% of the GPUs sold are NVIDIA and they don't work with Wayland very well at all. So it, that it a lot of the reasons why I think a lot of them have rolled that back is because of that NVIDIA issue there. Now whether that's NVIDIA's issue or somebody else's who knows, but, that's a big deal, uh, to cut off 78% of your potential user base. You know? It's,
0: it's, it's brave. It's brave.
4: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That would be a very brave move. So, are you a gamer, though, talking about, uh, Vulcan and all this stuff? Do you game at all?
0: Ooh, I, I game in the sense that, well, I had a pretty bad Tetris addiction when I was, <laughs> um, all at three, throughout university. Um, so I'm not really a gamer in the sense of a 3D shooter, but, um, Actually actually I remember um I was this is when it was called No Metris. Um and now it's now quadr I I would probably it might be a bit vain to say but I was probably in the top ten of the world. (laughs) I I I've no real way of validating that, but if I wasn't then I don't know. (laughs) I got really good at that thing. And then I think I upgraded my graphics drivers to the Nouveau um graphics drivers, the very early um V mm-hmm. NVIDIA ones and it broke my uh rendering so I couldn't play no Metris, which was great for finishing university. But um <laughs> hey yeah, you know, it worked. Um but um yeah I haven't I'm not really a sort of three D shooter up. I mean, let's let's be if I'm being honest, I have played quite i I've been to quite a few LAN parties where um I you know played on you know, Call of Duty and things like that and um actually some of my I think most yeah, had quite enjoyable experiences playing Call of Duty, particularly the single player, uh, modes, but I'm not, not a daily gamer at all. Um, only rarely will I, um, my muscle memory sneaks back and I find myself loading the Tetris clone.
4: Um, well, believe me, before this interview's over, Michael and Rocco will be trying to convince you to play Rocket League, just so you know. <laughs>
0: like,
3: I would never, it's the
1: best game ever. Mate. It is. You should try it. <laughs> and it works on Linux. So.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: All right, so say Chris Lamb tomorrow is going on a trip on the International Space Station. You're okay. getting a new laptop, and of course you install Debian. But what is the must-have software that you install first on a brand new install? Not that you ever reinstall, but if you <laughs> were, just imagine.
0: <laughs> well, I suppose I get new virtual machines, et cetera. So, I mean, the first thing definitely is my own configuration and, and shell. I mean I'm very much a man of you know habit and stuff like that. So I've got to install um Z shell or Z shell, whatever, Z-S-H, ZSH, whatever you want to call it. Um, mm-hmm. That certainly gets installed very first. Um and then um, Git because that's where all my configuration lives. And mm-hmm. but after that, like I would say I definitely install lots of other things. I mean yeah number three of course is to um to install some backup software, and number four is to test my backup software. Um, no, good no, man. I, I never do that, um, <laughs> but it's good to say, right? It's yeah. good to say. It makes me makes me sound really professional. Yeah. Um, um,
1: so, what do you use as a as a code editor?
0: Uh, I'm a Vim man. Um, yeah, like that's got a very highly not very highly customized, but a customized um, Vim configuration um, and things like that. So, yeah. Very much a feature of habit trying to don't fiddle with it very often because I'm just all usually trying to get something else done, fiddling with desktop environments or, um, code editors and things like that is, yeah.
1: Ryan, the force is strong with this one, but we're going to work on them. <laughs> I know.
4: I know. <laughs> so, you know, we were talking about some of the controversy with Google and Android and some of that, I guess it's a little bit of controversy, whether that's truly Linux and things like that. There has been this player that can be popularly hated within certain factions of the Linux community that may not realize how much they contribute to stuff and that's Microsoft. So Microsoft recently announced the creation of their own Linux kernel or their Azure project. Many of the comments that I've seen are positive, some of them are skeptical. You what is your take on Microsoft's involvement? And where this relationship between Linux and Microsoft is headed?
0: Well, obviously, if you look at history, history should tell us to be a little bit hesitant here. Um, but in some senses, they, as long as they sort of play by the rules, it, it's kind of fine. So, I mean, so the GPL, uh, the kernel is under the GPL, and so they must basically play by the same rules as everyone else. But if they're again like the um, the Chrome OS thing, if they're just using Debian to build their own little walled garden of non-free stuff on top of it, well, that's certainly within their rights. That's within certainly within the four freedoms they can they can um, uh, modify the software for any purpose, and that includes um, in- integrating with um, proprietary software on top, and that's f- sort of f- fine in a sense. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, you know, it's just sort of well. That's a shame. You know, I think um, society would be um, would be better off if that didn't happen. So, whilst um, for sort of a moral argument, like mm, that's a bit unideal, they can certainly sort of do what they like. Yeah, it's it's great to see so many named contributors from Microsoft contributing to Linux. I mean, I think in one month last year, uh, they were the biggest line by line contributors to the Linux kernel.
3: Yeah.
0: Made everyone, um, you sort know, of sit up straight and be like, oh, that's, that's
3: great. Right. Wasn't expecting wow. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, in a way, it's, it's kind of nice because it's, it's kind of like Microsoft admitting that Linux is better than Windows, so.
4: In Michael, that's what they're saying. Every line of code they write is admission. That well, Linux I'm saying
3: like the sense of like they had an announcement like a, like a month ago or so that they were going to put Windows on a back burner. And they even fired the department head and moved people around in, the, in, Mark, in Microsoft. So if Windows is not going to be their main focus and then they release something, they say their main focus is going to be IoT and server stuff. And then they release a Linux-based distribution basically for their IoT and server stuff. They're admitting that Linux is better.
1: <laughs> is that how it, that works? <laughs> that's how it works to me. <laughs>
3: Mike but was going to call the CNN reporter and be like,
0: look, here's your headline. I got
3: it. <laughs> like, Microsoft has given up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, scroll back on that. The um, I mean, again, if if, if my IoT um, light bulb runs in Linux, it's like, well, that's cool. And I can sort of tell my mom that, but it's sort of. Is it really running Linux in this in the sense that we kind of are using our computers and things like that? So I'm a little bit like great, but is this really moving? I think we may. The positives are are not as not as big as we think. Interesting. Uh,
1: So you're pretty much meh.
0: Yeah, (laughs) pretty much. Although just it's kind of cool, but it's it's also let's just take a step back. What does this? What does this really mean? Like great, without making it. Easier and faster and less read. Yeah. Yeah.
5: yeah. So one of the things I noticed on the Debian page is that there's a list of hardware vendors that sell computers with Debian pre-installed. Um, so is this a collaboration between you and those hardware vendors or is it simply a list that people can send into to say, yep, we've got hardware and we install Debian on it. How does, how does that work? It's, um, certainly much
0: more towards just sort of being a list um there is typically no development agreement there's usually no you know i mean certainly they would probably be contributing patches randomly etc but um there isn't a it isn't a sort of a um, stamp of approval in that sense have mm-hmm. talks about having a um, hardware certification lab which sort of goes the other way around mm-hmm. where, uh, vendors could potentially say um and essentially, I like, right, make it up, apply for a sort of little badge they can say, you know, works with Debian, you know, something like that. I can't think of the exact words.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but yes, it there is a the we would be slightly hesitant to bless any particular um commercial enterprise with a sort of you should buy this sort from of a point of view, that's just not something that Debian um can or should make a stand on. So it even if we would like to do a bit more of a in depth Sort of integration, collaboration work, it sort of does have to remain at a sensible, um, sensible distance in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But could
3: there be any kind of uh, like certified compatibility structure? Like, if a company wanted to, you know, get, have a guarantee with Debian that this will be compatible, um, would there be kind of like any kind of potential for that?
0: I mean, I wouldn't go as strong as to say a guarantee in a legal sense, but I mean, in in some sort of um, a sort of certification lab where we say, yeah, we tried this particular hardware with this version of Debian and um independently it, it works. So yeah, go for it. And um that would also speak to whether um, it required non free firmware and things like that or, yeah. or level of um you know this works but to get the Bluetooth you need this non free component or this um and but you know to, to suspend you need this non free component. And and things like that um are Those kind of questions are very important for people choosing Debian and things like that.
4: I would love to see like a humble bundle structure with hardware manufacturers that are, um, there's a lot of them, they're starting to grow, starting to hear about a lot more where part of some of the hardware you buy like an humble bundle, some of that money would be donated say to your favorite FOSS project or mm-hmm. distribution or that type of thing. That would be so cool to see. Obviously Debian wouldn't do anything specifically with that, but that would be a really neat to see a hardware manufacturer kind of take that stance of some of this money is going to go to your favorite project.
3: Yeah. And I also hope they do something that's like the humble bundle and then I can choose $5 for a laptop.
0: <laughs> Five big spender, big spender. he is. That's certainly not to say some of these vendors are already donating some of their um, uh, donating to Debian directly and some of them without That's making a fanfare about it at all. Um, uh, one privilege of being on the um, the private leader at email box is you do get to see the donations coming in, and some of the names, I, I, they're all they're pretty much they're private by default but some of the names you see and the amounts are usually just sort of oh wow i can't believe that they like debian that much every month yeah. oh, nice. wow. or they or they typoed when setting up the paypal <laughs>
3: <laughs> that extra zero right. was not was not intended <laughs>
1: yeah. all right so the main theme that we get from debian is it's stable it's yeah. rock solid and you want to keep it that way but what is coming up in the future? Obviously, you have to look towards the future to plan things. So is there anything coming up that uh, we may see in the near future that we don't know about?
0: Well, one thing particularly that's um, big news in Debian at the moment, in t- perhaps slight behind the scenes, but uh, the big thing is we've moved from a rather uh, a creaky um, uh, development platform to GitLab. And uh, the differences it's made to development is probably far beyond that we thought. I mean, we knew it'd be better and it'd be a bit more stable and things like that. I would see a bit bit more collaboration and things like that. But it's actually probably ten times what I thought it would be. Um, ben Hutchings from the kernel team was saying that prior to moving to this, they accepted one particular merge request via um, via sort of email system and things like that. But since moving to GitLab, they've I can't remember the numbers, but they you know, orders of magnitude more. Same elsewhere, yeah. things like that. So that I means the, the pace of development is in Debian is, is massively picked up just from changing that tool. Um,
3: nice. I mean, I, there was also a lot of times where I've, I would talk to some maintainers through the mailing list or through the the bugs tracker. For that way, on the email side, that like it, the experience between doing that and doing something like GitLab is so much more comfortable that I think that, that, that the the impact is going to just increase in
0: that as well as soon as people learn that that's available now. Absolutely, yeah. And I think you there were speaking to perhaps the, um, the slightly newer contributor, but even to, I mean, the people sending these kernel patches aren't necessarily um, per, um, Linux newbies. So even for well-established developers, just getting rid of some of the speed bumps in getting a patch merged is... It's already shown to be that great. It's been fantastic. So, yeah. yeah. In terms of other stuff, I mean, more infrastructure stuff, like um, we want to move to something called source-only uploads. Uh, again, sort of a slightly in-the-weeds technical thing. Um, we probably want to include more um, security hardening by default. So, last year, we enabled AppArmor by default. Um, and I think increasing the amount of AppArmor profiles, etc., to lock down applications. I think it would be very good. One day we'll get rid of Python 2. One day. <laughs> not, not next release, and probably not the release after, but it, but it will be going. Um, so, yeah. Lots of small architectural infrastructure changes that just make Debian that foundational core, that foundational toolbox that everyone is sort of relying on.
1: Well... We believe in supporting uh, things that we enjoy using. So um, what is it that you guys have available to people that they can support you guys with uh, donations-wise, time-wise, anything? What can people do
0: to help out Debian? Well, the biggest thing they can do, and probably the easiest thing to do, is if you see something that you find a problem, please file a bug. Like That's like um, a lot of the time we will... Um, I'll just hear about a problem that, with a distribution in person. It's like, oh yeah, I tried this thing and it works. Like, well, I think I know how to fix that. I just didn't know it was broken. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's that doesn't that just takes a slight amount of time to write a bug report. So that's yep. probably the easiest thing. So number one, uh, and then number two, of course, is if you can fix those problems, or you know how to fix other things, or you can contribute in any other way, particularly documentation. Also, in terms of. Um, these slight newcomers to Debian are in this privileged position where they aren't, don't have the curse of knowledge. So they're the people in the best situation, in the best, with the best perspective to say, I didn't understand this thing in the installer, say, for example, or I didn't, when I first booted up, I got this, it wasn't broken, but it was just slightly weird. I didn't know exactly how to sort of get started and things like that. Um, and that's incredibly valuable because once they, uh, once they start using it after a few months, they can't see that they'd had a problem in the first place um, because of this whole empathy for new users. So, new users in particular should should sort of contribute their experience about running Debian uh, for the first time and things like that, and software in general.
3: It's interesting. Um, just quick follow up. I'm just curious about something. Um, this, uh, this is probably like one of the most important questions I could I could ask. The codenames for Debian use (laughs) Toy Story as a thing. So how is the process of the codename selection picked? And if you run out of codenames for Toy Story, for example, like the characters or you've already gone through all of them, which Pixar film would be the next running to be (laughs) the choices for codenames?
0: Well, well, luckily, I think Pixar know that the Toy Story franchise has got a few more dollar signs attached to it. So we're likely to see Toy Story, what are we up to, four, five? I think there's
3: three, but I think they're making a fourth one now, yeah.
0: Well, there you go. We'll have another 20 characters. And all these (laughs) merchandise. So they're very likely to have throw as many characters in as possible. Um, Chosen by the release team, they um, they basically can choose the name of the release. Um, It's not something that's decided by the community, luckily. Otherwise, we would never decide. Um, Yeah, playing it kindly. So, yeah, the release team will decide it a couple in advance. So the next release is Buster, of course, um, and then Bullseye will be released after that, and then the release after that will be called Bookworm. Uh-huh. Nice, nice. So, and I think those must be in Toy Story three because I haven't. Yeah, been, I'm not sure yet. Yeah.
4: Well one of our patrons, Matthias, just wanted to say, destination Linux, we are asking the hard and important question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: hey, it's the questions everybody wants to know.
3: Everybody anyway. wants to know exactly. Yeah.
0: I was Especially, I was
1: hoping we could try to get
3: Ratatouille
0: in there or something. Yeah. I, I think that might be veto based on the spelling. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to type that?
1: Yeah, that's true. Chris, it's been a awesome talk with you. I learned a lot about Debian because, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't familiar with a lot of the Debian protocol and uh, Debian itself. So I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And thanks for stopping
0: by, man. No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me on.
1: Well, we also want to give
4: a big shout out to our patrons who joined us for this interview. Thank you guys for
1: your continued
4: support of the show and keeping this happening, helping us get brilliant guests like this. All right.
1: A big thank you to each and every one of you, no matter if you hit the like button or not. All right, (laughs) So everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone.
2: Thank you for listening to another episode of
0: Destination Linux Podcast.
4: So, what's everyone
1: been up to? So, well, um well
3: <laughs>
1: Working. Uh-huh. How's work mm-hmm. going for you? Michael, you looked pretty cool in that spot right there because your the Debian logo was right over your eye and it looked like you had face paint on. Oh like nice. right around your eye. It was cool looking. Like you were brave hearting the Debian yeah, yeah. logo.
3: I will.
4: Yeah. Well, the wing it's been fine for me because it's you that has to wing it. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> so it's not been an issue for me, per se. Uh-huh. Just mutes my mic throughout the whole stream. I can
1: do that post-audio, dude. I don't need to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> Look, where where are all these questions I asked? <laughs> I would have paid
4: anything to be a fly on the wall to hear Rocco when it went offline and he's trying to get it back because, you know, he Rocco... Does not verge from the cursing, so you'd hear. All he like, would
3: say is, "This pumpkin
4: smashing toothpicky, I'm mad."
2: <laughs> <laughs> poopy, poopy face moment.
1: Yes, but everybody heard me, well uh, nobody actually heard me. But I was live, so I couldn't even say fiddlesticks. You know. <laughs> <laughs>
5: fiddlesticks. That's I
1: yeah, you're
4: right. We go from still collects your information, but doesn't sell it at least. So that's an advantage. That's
3: not, uh, that's not an totally
1: advantage. Did. They totally do. It's guaranteed. They said they don't, but we I won't. We won't get into won't, that whole argument because I might switch to Apple over it. But uh, it's not really that much better. <laughs> they won't sell you. They won't you sell your
3: data of your files, but they will sell your actual data of how many files you have, who you are, things like that.
4: You don't know how many people were. Sending private telegrams to me, like, "Are you really mad about this?" I'm like, "Why does everyone think everything I say I'm mad about?" I'm just
3: because you're you're very you're very passionate.
4: Oh, I don't. i was like, I'm not mad. Why would I be mad? They're like, you know, Rocco's joking in private. I'm like, yes, I know Rocco's joking. He's not getting an iPhone. (laughs) God, everybody thinks I'm this angry troll running
5: around.
4: (coughs) I'll tell you guys a sad story. I played the trumpet in high school. Let me get the violin out. And I never got to first chair <clears throat> That's because wow. I stand Well now you tell me Somebody tells me
1: This whole time I thought it was my skill <laughs> There was no first chair It's <laughs> a <The> trumpet <laughs> dude
3: <laughs> I played guitar for uh, Let's see Four days mm-hmm. Oh wow mm-hmm. Yeah, Four days
4: what bands invited you?
3: All of them. Yeah, Metallica one, it was like was wanting me in there. It's like, like please, that. Michael. We've heard you've been playing for four whole days. <laughs> exactly. Just, you must be. You must be like magnificent, masterful.
4: <laughs> trying to be more like Michael, and
3: naturally.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a, a massive fan of his, but yeah. <laughs>
3: sometimes Google don't. Well, actually, yeah, that's a good point. It was a while ago. But also, sometimes Google doesn't, like, send, like, I like it an the email I like the way you said it, it the
4: first time. Sometime Google
1: don't. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> All right, I think the okay. logos are right. Uh, the overlay's not going to be right, but that's nothing I can change. Good,
2: man.
0: Oh, yeah. I'll do
1: it. Mm-hmm. Well, how it's it's literally
3: the exact same as it was last time. So, what's different?
1: It hasn't been right for remember. I said last week was
3: yeah, last time it's also exactly the same as the one before. The one every one of the ones that worked perfectly, it's the exact same file. It,
1: it hasn't been right for probably three, four weeks, and it's just, been the exact same file for the literally entire time
3: oh I've made God.
5: it. i just telling you, someone it's not breaking
3: it. He's just breaking so you it Proc-
5: it's Proc- the Proc- the same Proc- every week. Something
1: <laughs> pulls out. Look, and the problem look. is the name tags on the on yours, Michael, yours, and Zed are a pixel or two above the bottom of your video, so you can see <laughs> the light a go through. Pixel or two, <laughs> a pixel. And if I raise it, then if I pull it down, then Chris's goes underneath where the writing gets cut off. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. I'm throwing it out there. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would be awesome if we could have like an editable one that I could use and then I could edit it to make it perfect.
4: Just an idea, guys. Maybe some of the time you use playing Rocket League together, you could get together and figure out the overlay. Rocket
1: League is life. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. yeah,
1: how dare you. I
3: mean, uh, you, could the, you could even replace anything. The only thing that replaces Rocket League is oxygen.
1: Wait, I have to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, give me five <laughs> minutes thinking. to make, to see if this one will work right. Five minutes of silence? No, just, just five
4: yeah. minutes. That's impossible for us. Could you imagine us trying to sit here for five minutes without talking?
5: It's never going to happen.
4: I can't even do it for five seconds. Whatever. I've got so much to say, Rocco. It's the world. You <clears> we were close. <throat> that was three.
5: <laughs>
4: Try harder. <sighs> it's not nice, Rocco.
3: Don't
1: know. Nice. There okay. is no try. Only do. Mm-hmm. Do you must.
4: Mm.
3: Oh Yoda.
1: We'll Thank you, Michael. That works, actually. Sweet. Oh, wow. You know what's the
3: actually... best part about that, Rocco? Mm-hmm. I moved it four pixels.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: Everybody say something. This
1: is the part Hello. where we
4: can talk. We can, talk a, month. A month. We can a talk a lot.
3: Yes. But and it depends can... on... It depends on how and we have like, to over each other. Yeah, too. let's definitely overtalk everybody so yeah. nobody that can way, hear right. nothing. Yeah,
1: definitely everyone <laughs> yeah, just yeah, start yeah, talking yeah. right now. Oh my gosh, how many, how many months have we been doing this? <laughs>
4: <laughs> Chris is like, why did I come on this show? Uh,
1: this oh, is what I, you got yeah. yourself into, Chris.
0: <clears throat> well, I sort of knew what I was getting into from um, from Crystal. And
1: oh, uh, I'm sure it was all good things that she said, right? <laughs>
2: yeah. <absolutely. laughs>
4: Believe it or not, somehow at the end of this, it will look like a professional production. <laughs> I wouldn't say professional, now, but, yeah. <clears throat> but it, it actually somehow does come out in the end after about nine hours of editing right now.
3: Ryan? How, how close do I need to be to the microphone?
4: You need to be right onto the microphone You to need where to your be face is pushing eating into it. the computer.
1: Michael, are you ready? Yeah, he looks ready. He's totally ready. Always.
0: Hashtag <laughs> YOLO. I mean, how else were you gonna get it?
5: I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, we, mean, maybe,
0: on the early ADSL, you could have downloaded it but even then, that'll be a, like a, a day-long download, so. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I, I uh. <laughs> <laughs>
3: what happened there, Michael?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Sounded like some bubble wrap. <laughs> My bad. My bad. That <laughs> was not on purpose. So. Uh, okay.
4: All right. <laughs> Mike, Mike, are you literally sitting there with
1: wrap in the middle of a podcast? Uh, that's why he has fidget spinners.
0: Fidget <laughs> I, I dropped it. I dropped,
1: gotcha. <laughs> I dropped it. Oh All
0: right. Well, you must got chalkboard in your life. I know. <laughs> <It was> like- <laughs> Oh, well, I'm just, I'm just on the chalkboard. Yeah, right.
1: What's going on? I don't understand.
0: <laughs> don't be distracted
5: or anything, Chris. Yeah. Hmm. All right. All right. We ready?
4: Yeah. Thank you guys for your continued support of the show and keeping this happening, helping us get brilliant guests like this on and everyone who watches hits the thumbs up and supports this channel in any way possible. Smash what does it you say Rocco like smash oh, that
5: like button. I can't say that. <laughs> just do the that like button. Yeah. Yeah, okay. the like button down there.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Don't do that. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I think that's going to be part of the outtakes. You're not easy.
4: supposed to tell him not to do it, Rocco. Well, <laughs> well, I, Actually, I was I talking Rocco to <laughs> you.
3: Yeah. I think Rocco is in preferred. Now going to be
4: like, well, Rocco said thumbs down.
3: Well, Rocco doesn't really, he's he's not about the smashing He's more about the ringing the bell. So be sure to ring the bell.
4: <laughs> ring the Whatever. Yeah, just keep getting new ones after every cat destroys it. Right? I'm gonna put a high voltage headphone together and
2: see what
1: happens. <laughs> hey, uh, can we can we have proof that the cat's still alive, please? Kitty? Yeah. <laughs> Kitty. No, sorry. <clears throat>
2: no,
1: it's still around. Just 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 believe me. It's just, yeah, just believe me. <laughs> but
3: but so before we go, absolutely, there's one question that we all have to ask, and you know, Chris really you, you, this is it's very vital important question Marmite thoughts
5: Uh-oh. I I quite like it though.
1: that's 3 to 1 Zeb
5: I, <laughs> I know it's I've got to find somebody who hates Marmite
1: <laughs> What's the uh, what's the other one Zeb Bovril. Bovril. Bovril Bovril throw up Ooh. throw up <laughs>
5: Do you know what I haven't tried Bovril
3: uh, By not trying, we automatically assume it's terrifying. Of course. Yes.
5: It's the beef version of Marmite.
3: (laughs) That sounds so (laughs) (laughs) disgusting. It's like
4: chicken in a can or something. (laughs)
3: Spam. I
1: think spam sounds better. (laughs) So seriously, what is the attraction to Marmite? Like, what is it that is like the reason somebody would even try that? I
0: think it's Perhaps like the, the really sharp texture of it. I, mean, I think it speaks to someone who might like mustards, uh, particularly the English like mm-hmm. horseradish or wasabi. Someone who likes that will generally, like not, it's not obviously gospel, but they will generally also like, um, marmite because it's got that kind of salty, sharp, um, sharp taste to it. Yeah,
5: it's more of a savoury thing, isn't it, than a, than a sweet, Thing.
0: absolutely yeah De- definitely savoury yeah. yeah and it's a makes a good base for other things you wouldn't like have a you wouldn't necessarily have a marmite sandwich of just like bread and marmite but you might put a small bit of marmite and then something else and, and together it has this sort of halo property of making stuff better so yeah <laughs>
5: So I, yeah. I will get you guys... I will ship it out to you, okay? You can all I have it now I head. will
0: take it.
1: I will take. I will try it. I actually sure. do <laughs> want to try it, yeah. How I'll about just, how about you just buy some and take it to self and do it live and just taste it live?
5: Yes. Could
4: we find it in the United we, States?
1: Yeah, you can find it in one of the
0: international I thought it was stores.
1: illegal because it... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it's actually quite... It's a bit of a meme, like, food for the UK in terms of expat food. Like, it's a classic... Or oh, what would you miss if you had to live abroad? Um, almost to the point where, well, actually, when you go past, you know, you can't take liquids past security mm-hmm. at airports. But the other side of them, um, of the security, you can actually buy Marmite, like next to um, like little little travel shower gel things, um, like in the, in uh, the boots of the chemist. The other <laughs> You get the little, like things of them.
4: It's like a necessity. Like, it's oh fear. gosh, thank goodness! On the other side, I can still get my Marmite fix. Yeah. <laughs>